Justin Martyr was a Christian writer and thinker who lived in the first half of the second century. And I want to begin by reading to you a brief excerpt from his first apology. On the day called Sunday, there is a gathering together in the same place of all who live in a city or a rural district. We all make our assembly in common on the day of the sun, since it is the first day on which God changed the darkness and matter and made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, arose from the dead on the same day. For they crucified him on the day before Saturn's day, and on the day after, which is the day of the sun, he appeared to his apostles and taught his disciples these things. Justin is not alone in his testimony regarding the day of assembly of the early church. There's ample evidence from other sources and from the New Testament itself. But he does make something explicit that's implied in the New Testament, something that David actually mentioned in his prayer this morning. Christians assemble on the first day of the week because it is the day when Christ rose from the dead. The gospel writers were not biographers in the modern sense. Uh, that is, they don't pay strict attention to chronology the way that we'd probably like them to if we were writing the accounts. And so it's notable that all four of them unanimously record the day on which Jesus rose from the tomb. It was the first day of the week. Furthermore, as Justin mentioned, Jesus met with his disciples on that first day of the week. John's gospel makes a point of showing that there was another similar meeting on the following first day of the week, and Jesus appeared there too. We find in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 that the disciples assembled together on the first day of the week for the purpose of eating the Lord's Supper. And it's interesting here to note that that adjective, Lord's, it occurs only in two ways in the New Testament, that Greek adjective, Lord's. It occurs in connection with the Lord's Supper, and it occurs one other time, Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, when it talks about the Lord's Day. That's because the Lord's Supper was eaten on the Lord's Day. And in fact, it's that memorial that largely distinguished those first day of the week gatherings. As others have put it, no Lord's Supper without the Lord's Day, no Lord's Day without the Lord's Supper. And this association between the first day of the week and the Lord is so strong that the Latin word for Lord, Dominica, eventually became the new name of the first day of the week. And it passed on into the Romance languages. If you're a speaker of Spanish, you'll probably recognize Domingo. Sounds like Dominica, doesn't it? Dimanche in French. And then a lot of other languages that I don't have any familiarity with, but you can look them up. You don't have to take my word for it. The point is, this connection expressed in both the New Testament, expressed in other early Christian writings, gives the first day of the week its significance. It's the day of Jesus' resurrection. It's the day on which the early disciples gathered together and Jesus met with them. 
Now, this is that Sunday of the year when the entire religious world is turning its attention to the resurrection of Christ. But Easter as a holiday is something that was unknown before the second century. Does that mean that those earliest Christians, those first century Christians, thought that the resurrection was ah, not really that important? No. No, it's quite the opposite. For them, the resurrection was an event of such significance that they didn't celebrate it just yearly. They celebrated it each and every week when they gathered together. And when we gather together on the first day of the week, we're doing that very same thing. Or at least, we should be. I want us to examine together for a few minutes this morning the significance of the resurrection to those early disciples. An event of such tremendous importance that they proclaimed it constantly. They commemorated it weekly. And why we ought to be doing that very same thing. First of all, we should note that the earliest Christians proclaimed the resurrection as a central part of the gospel. I already mentioned, all four gospel accounts detail Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Luke puts it in these words. We'll read from his account, Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. You'll notice in Luke's account that these women had come to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus with spices. They saw him die. They saw him buried. And at that point, all of their hopes vanished. That expectation that they had of him establishing an earthly kingdom, it was demolished. And so when these women found the tomb empty, and they went back and told the apostles, they didn't believe them at first. Peter and John had to run to the tomb to see for themselves. Peter went in first, then John. John would write later, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. But once they were convinced that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead, the disciples went around everywhere proclaiming that. We can just walk through Acts and see that emphasis in particular. For example, in Acts chapter 1, in selecting an apostle to take the place of Judas, Peter says, One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and went out among us, 
beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. A short time later, in that first gospel sermon preached on Pentecost, Peter spoke of one of David's prophecies of the coming Messiah. And he says there, he foresaw, that is David, and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You could turn forward to Acts chapter 4. We read there that as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. A few verses later, in that same chapter, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. That's just in the first four chapters of Acts. We could continue through Acts. We could certainly look at the letters, Paul's letters in particular, but the point I'm trying to make has been established. See, the resurrection of Christ is the crucial matter in the Christian faith. The apostles staked their lives on it. They left behind their homes and their families, their worldly goods, their reputations. Eventually, at least according to tradition, all but one of them, John, suffered martyrdom because of their belief in the resurrection of Christ. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord, as we saw already in Acts chapter 1. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, then the other women. He met with ten of the apostles there in that upper room that resurrection evening. A week later, he appeared to all eleven in that same room. He met with seven and had breakfast with them by the side of the Sea of Galilee. He walked with two on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to Peter and to James alone. He appeared to 500 at one time in Galilee. And there are other appearances we could mention. But finally, he ascended from their sight on the Mount of Olives. Now, the purpose of our lesson today is not to try to prove the fact of the resurrection. We have an article touching on that in our bulletin. That's a worthy topic in its own right. But I just want to mention here, these ancient people knew that dead people did not get up out of the tomb and come back to life again. That's what makes this so remarkable. You could think about Acts chapter 17. Paul's preaching in Athens. He's on Mars Hill. And when he gets to the point about the resurrection from the dead, they laugh him out of the place. Oh, there were some Jews like Martha, John chapter 11, who believed in a resurrection at the end. But for God to raise someone like this up in the middle of history, nobody expected that sort of thing. And that is precisely the point. As witnesses of that, they were willing to stake everything on the fact of His resurrected presence. So we read... Soon after the church began, they were arrested because, as we read a moment ago, the Sadducees were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And the text says further in that chapter, 
They called them. They charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. They went back preaching and teaching the resurrection of the dead. And they were arrested again. And so shortly thereafter, the Sanhedrin calls them in, chapter 5, verse 28, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You see, clearly, the resurrection was central for the earliest Christians. It was the subject of most of their preaching. It was what they commemorated in their weekly meetings. And they did all of this at tremendous personal risk. Their lives were in peril. And that raises the obvious question. Why? See, there are some self-identified Christians who are modern and sophisticated. And they'll tell you that the resurrection is a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. Surely we don't still believe in that. But even if we do, let's say for the sake of argument, let's say Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, so what? I mean, that's great for him. But what does that have to do with us? Why is the resurrection important? What's so significant about it that the apostles went everywhere proclaiming it at such great personal risk? The Apostle Paul offers us probably the most concise statement of the importance of the resurrection in the salutation of his letter to the Romans. And he speaks there of the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says that the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus is the Son of God. We unpack these statements that he makes here, not just in the sense, Son of God, of, say, the second Psalm and other Old Testament passages. That is, that he is the kingly deliverer He's the Messiah. He's the son of David they've been looking for. But also in the sense that he is Lord. That is, he is the rightful ruler of the entire world. And the resurrection also says, you notice, he was declared to be the son of God in power. God is most fully revealed to humanity in the resurrection. So the resurrection reveals that Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Lord. And it reveals God's power to us. With those three things in mind, we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because it's here that Paul discusses the resurrection at greater length than anywhere else in all of Scripture. 
He talks, first of all, about the gospel that he preached. And by this point, it should be no surprise to us that that gospel was centered on the resurrection. Jackson read this just a few moments ago. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, when Paul says that this happened in accordance with the Scriptures, he has their whole ebb and flow in mind. We're not talking about a passage here or there, not proof texting. This is the vast sweep of all of the narrative of the Bible. Everything in it was pointing to this. This is what it's all about. That Christ would die and be buried and that He'd be raised from the dead. And he lists off those resurrection appearances, the ones we talked about earlier, as proof of what he's stating. That's verses 6 through 11, that he appeared to more than 500 at once. He appeared to, to Cephas, to the twelve, etc. If this didn't happen, Paul says then the gospel is null and void, verse 14 in particular. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. But the good news is that it did, in fact, happen. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also...